Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Eric Bowl, Director of Public Affairs, and with me today on this live stream on Facebook, as well as recording for our podcast, are Spencer Tuma and BJ Tanksley. Say hello, guys. Hey, thanks for having us on again. Absolutely. Glad we could get back together to talk about this brand new, gigantic um, stimulus or relief bill, whatever you want to call it. Um, I saw somebody this morning talking about how this is not a stimulus bill, really. This is putting uh, the economy into a medically induced coma. Like, try to keep it alive so that we can bring it back when we need to. Interesting. I've not heard that take on it. So, uh, but stimulus bill, that is, that is an understatement. The bill itself is huge. I'm excited to dig into the details today. Absolutely. Well, let's get started with that. It's um, a lot to go through. I know we just got the bill text, you know, yesterday uh, afternoon or evening even. So we're still trying to figure out all the details of exactly what it means. Um, But uh, there's a a lot of things in there for agriculture specifically. Um, Some things that we had been advocating directly for um, and then some other things that we hadn't seen until the text came out. So um, Spencer, what are some of the top line highlights of this? Yeah, so um, a lot of different things in this bill. Obviously, it's almost a thousand page bill, so there's a lot more things in there besides just agriculture. Uh, But mainly the things we were monitoring at Missouri Farm Bureau had to do with programs offered by USDA. So this bill uh, replenishes the funds in the Commodity Credit Corporation, or CCC, uh, at the level of $14 billion. That's less than what Uh, Congress had originally put into the bill. Originally, it was actually around 50 billion, but that was uh, whittled down significantly as the negotiations took place over the last few days. Um, The CCC, of course, funds a lot of different programs, but most recently, the CCC has funded the market facilitation program or those trade aid payments that a lot of people have heard about. Uh, We don't know if that money will be used for another round of market facilitation program payments, or if the department will try to use those funds in another way to help farmers and ranchers. There was also, um, separate from the CCC funds, there was $9.5 billion allocated directly to the Office of the Secretary of Agriculture, and those funds are to be distributed to livestock, dairy, and specialty crop producers to help recover losses specifically related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, the House still has not passed the agreement. The Senate did pass it unanimously last night, 96 to zero. Uh, We have four senators not voting. They are in self-quarantine. One of them has tested positive for the coronavirus, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. Um, But we are uh, anxious to see once the House passes the agreement, we have a feeling that will be later this week, then the Secretary of Agriculture can decide what to do with those funds. So right now we're in a little bit of a holding pattern where we know what's in the bill. We don't anticipate major changes, but we're not sure how USDA is actually going to use the money. And and that uh, portion about the Community Credit Corporation, the CCC, um, that was a place where, the, what's the lending cap? Is it $20 billion a year? $30 billion. 30. Okay, they were trying to get it increased by $20 billion to a yep. total of 50 um, that was one of the pushes by a lot of the ag state senators, but ultimately that was unsuccessful. They were only able to get um, refilled to the uh, to fill up, I guess, that thirty dollar capacity, right? So um, basically, the funds that they put into the CCC just replace the amount of funds that were expended on the market facilitation program last year. We estimate 
but that number is about 14.3 billion. That's what was expended through MFP. USDA has approximately $8 billion already in the CDC fund. So that 14 billion plus that 8 billion, that's taking you to just a little over uh, 21, $22 billion, depending on exactly how much is currently in the account. All right. And the nine and a half billion that's going directly to the office of the secretary, do we have a feel for how that's going to be divided up and you know what industries that's going to go to? Well, so the bill says it has to go to the livestock, dairy, and specialty crop industries. So we do know that those industries are likely to benefit from those funds, um, but we don't know how that money is going to be allocated. And we also don't know how that program is going to work. You know, historically, our beef producers in particular have not had a lot of USDA programs directed specifically to them. So this is going to be very likely something that they're going to have to come up with from scratch. Um, it's probably going to be unlike anything we've seen uh, in previous years. All right. That's totally speculation at this point. And we won't know until the bill's actually finally passed when they'll start to finalize those decisions? That's my understanding. You know, the Secretary of Agriculture, I was on a call earlier this week, um, and he alluded to the fact that Congress was very likely going to give money to USDA for this. Uh, but because USDA doesn't actually have the money until or have the authority until Congress passes the bill and the president signs it, the secretary is really not at liberty to release details. Now, I can't say that they might not be working, some, be working on something behind the scenes, but none of that information can be released um, because those are two different branches of that. Yeah, and it'll take them a little bit of time to get all those details out, but hopefully very yeah. as quickly as, as possible, because I know they don't want to waste any time getting relief to people. Um, yeah. So uh, th on that note, there are a lot of people in different industries or parts of the ag industry that are having very specific challenges. Um, one of those is ethanol and the corn um, yeah. market. Where, what are we hearing on that? So we've seen a lot of demand for ethanol eroded in the past couple of days, over the last week or so, um, and it's causing a lot of heartburn in the corn industry and in the ethanol industry as well. We have seen some plants stop buying corn altogether. Uh, we've had some plants who said they're only going to buy a certain amount and then they're going to have to use up their inventory. Um, and some plants have said, you know, if things continue, uh, they may have to significantly slow down their production. Obviously, that's a huge concern. The ethanol industry has had a pretty rough bit the last year or so because of all the small refinery exemption waivers that the EPA had granted. Um, we kind of thought with ethanol we were going to be on the up and up for a while because we had a recent court ruling um, basically directed that those small refinery exemption waivers couldn't be used that way in the future. And so we were excited about that ruling, but uh, unfortunately, because demand right now is so low for fuel, because people aren't traveling, that's causing a big hit to the ethanol industry. Yeah, and that, uh, you mentioned that court case. So there was some positive news on that, at least, um, for one item on ethanol. One, uh, I think the deadline yesterday was yesterday for the government to um, appeal the ruling of the court and the government did not file an appeal. And so right. that means that the ruling, the lower court ruling will remain in place. And um, that was something that the corn industry was very happy about. But on the other hand, like you say, that the, the um, American Farm Bureau 
put out a, a analysis yesterday. Their chief economist put out an analysis about the ethanol market and why it's tanked so badly over the past, well, a couple of weeks, really, especially. And a lot of that is just because of the fact that the oil market is dropping through the floor. And um, yeah, like you say, because demand is almost non-existent compared to where it was a couple of weeks ago. And also, you know, the, the producers of um, oil, uh, let's see, Russia and Saudi Arabia were having a big um, price war over the past few months anyway. that had been driving the price down and then the price of oil dropped off a cliff. And so that all factors into it. And um, Poet, the largest producer of ethanol um, in, in America, which actually I saw the other day, they buy 5% of all corn in America. Um, just that one company does. And they are starting to um, pull back their purchases of corn. So a lot of different factors going into that. But um, anything specific in this um, stimulus or relief bill that related to that that you saw? You know, not at this time, but I would say that because there have been funds provided to USDA, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility that they're going to be able to um, find some support for that industry. I'm being told um, just anecdotally from several different sources. So the House is likely going to pass the agreement uh, within the next day or two, probably today or tomorrow. After that, Congress plans to take an extended recess for approximately four weeks. I know the Senate's not scheduled to come back until after April 20th, um, but I'm already hearing talks of a phase four package. So, so this bill, everybody's calling it the phase three bill because there was two relief packages passed already. This one related more to the agriculture and food sector. Um, I'm told that phase four may have more of an energy and infrastructure to to it. So um, I would say that if there's not going to be help in this bill, which there very well could be, um, we're not out of opportunities yet. Yeah. So that could still be coming. And now, BJ, you um, have been working a lot on the biodiesel issue in the state capitol. Are you hearing anything from the soybean people about where biodiesel is headed with all this? Yeah, so we would, um, we'd like to get back to session. Um, that's going to be necessary. We had it perfected in the house before we adjourned kind of this spring break period. But unfortunately, it looks like it's going to be a while before we get to get back to the Capitol. Uh, there's been nothing definitively stated other than uh, this past week or this week, the governor officially closed the Capitol and state office buildings for at least two weeks. Um, so that puts us mid-April. Uh, that's not a surprise. And to people following along, that doesn't change anybody's idea. Um, but that makes it more definitive. It's more definite now that it's going to be a while before we're back to normal in the Capitol. Um, if, we get back to, if we get back to normal, um, we'll have an opportunity to try to push for some of those things. But it looks like it's going to be a while. I was talking to someone yesterday. This is pure speculation. But, you know, you're probably looking end of April, early May at the earliest and the legislature is going to still be charged with passing a budget um, if they come back on the, you know, with some time left in the regular schedule if you, or reg, regular session, if you will. So there's going to be a while and some heavy things that have to get done. Um, I just my crystal ball. I think the Senate tries to come back in in the next couple of weeks somehow. Um, I think they'll still try to be social distancing and, and pass that. Um, the budget, the supplemental budget that the House passed, I think they'll take that up and pass it in order to get some of those funds flowing through the state government. But then I think we're probably on hold for another couple of weeks before we get back to normal work. And that, and that's being optimistic. Um, yeah. 
there's a likelihood that we go without passing anything or even have maybe some special sessions over the summer to try to, to try to get a few things done uh, prior. I mean, there's a lot of legislators that are going to be term limiting out. This is an election year. Um, there's probably a few things that people really would like to get done. Uh, unfortunately, this, I mean, there's bigger things at play here, but, but unfortunately this session's on hold for, for this foreseeable future. Yeah, and the way that the Missouri House works, or the Missouri legislature works, is that there is a absolute drop-dead deadline that they are their session ends, right? Is that, yeah. is that set by the state constitution, I think? I believe so. It's yeah. usually second week or third week of May, depending on how the calendar falls. The budget deadline's usually a week or so before that, yeah. and let them have a few weeks more to get things done. There have been instances in the past where they didn't agree to a budget before the deadline. They came back pretty soon thereafter session, got that done, where they could totally focus on the budget. Uh, since I've been in this position, there was a fear one year that we were going to end up doing that. They came to a compromise and passed the budget. I know they would like to stay on schedule as much as possible, but then again, we all would right now. Yeah, and like, uh, you know, the, the reality is if you take out a month worth of the time that you have, when you have a defined amount of time to work anyway, you're just not going to get as many, as many things across the finish line as you would in a normal year. So that means if and when they do go back to session, we're going to be looking at, all right, what's the bare bones, the yeah. top priorities, and that's the only things that are going to have a chance. And who knows Absolutely. what those are going to be. Absolutely. You're looking at things like redistricting reform, uh, sending that to the ballot. You're looking at things like PDMP, who had already actually been passed by both sides in a compromise reach, just needs a final vote. Um, you're also looking at things like eminent domain and biodiesel that have passed one side and need to get to the other. Um, those few things that have actually seen some action, you know, we were teed up for a lot of the things we were talking about, but by teed up, I mean, hey, let's get it out of one end to the other and in the next couple months get it done. Uh, you take a month off that and you're really cutting down the number of bills that are still viable. Now, because the legislative process is what it is, there'll be a lot of people looking to amend things onto those bills, um, but that's going to be limited. Usually, sure. if it hasn't been vetted at least a little bit, if it's not just a no-brainer, um, it's probably not moving forward. Yeah, in large part, though, you're looking at um, trimming down from wish lists to absolute necessities. So yeah, absolutely. We'll see what happens. And if we're all still social distancing, even getting together is going to be difficult. I, I, I don't, you know, a lot of those restrictions are going to have to be lifted. Um, and then are they going to let public back into the building while other people are there? I mean, yeah. let's hope we get back to normal sooner rather than later. Well, definitely so. And and you did mention that the Missouri State Capitol is currently closed for a couple of weeks, correct? Yes, so it's closed for at least there. two weeks. The governor announced that. So yeah. um, that'll have to be lifted. Um, I know the Senate wants to get back in to do that supplemental budget. And I've heard rumor that they're looking at some creative ways to do that, meeting outside the Capitol um, or finding some way to be six feet apart from each other and still, you know, get get the legislative things done. Yeah, but just before just that budget bill, they're not going to. I don't foresee them continuing session that way. Sure. Well, and there are a number of things in this um, stimulus relief package that we've been talking yeah. about too that relate to things beyond agriculture, um, things that are extraordinarily important to our membership. Um, the uh, the one thing that we talked about last week that I think everybody's experiencing now is the the issues with broadband that. 
people in rural areas are you know, trying to work from home or do schoolwork and whatnot, and they're starting to see that those um, concerns we raised a couple of weeks ago uh, in a commentary and on our podcast last week are not just hypothetical. Um, everybody's yeah. speeds are diminishing. You know, they're they're um, uh, as people are clogging the the internet. Um, everybody's actual broadband speeds are declining where they're even fortunate enough to have it. Um, what is in that bill though? I think that they address some things um, that may long-term help us out with that. Yeah, great question. So um, there is a lot of money for broadband in the economic relief filled out past the Senate last night. Uh, first and foremost, something that we're really excited about is there's about $25 million in there for the USDA distance learning and telemedicine program. And as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, those are two very big areas of broadband where Missouri in particular can be a little bit lacking. So uh, we're excited about that. There's also some additional funds for the USDA Reconnect program, uh, which funds broadband deployment to underserved and unserved areas. Uh, if you have heard of the Reconnect program before, you might remember uh, just a couple months ago, there were some significant awards in northern Missouri from the USDA Reconnect program. So we're excited about that. Um, a great thing about USDA broadband programs is that in the last Farm Bill, um, any broadband program that USDA administers must be built to a speed of no less than 25 to 3 uh, downloaded upload speed, which is a federal minimum standard. It was not that way before. Um, Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler actually put that amendment into the Farm Bill. So all of this new USDA money should be building up um, that adequate speed technology. So we're excited about that. And there was also some funds in there uh, for the SEC to fund rural broadband projects. I'm not as with the details of that just yet. Um, as I mentioned, I'll go ahead and um, I guess plead the fifth, but there, uh, there's a lot of bill there. So I haven't gone all the way through that part yet, but I do know there's some money in there um, and we're excited to see how that might help. But it, it's important to remember, uh, and Eric, you said it, those are really long-term solutions. That doesn't necessarily mean that your broadband's gonna get faster right now, or that if you don't have broadband, you're gonna get it tomorrow. Um, unfortunately, it is going to take a while, but uh, we think it's important that Congress focused on that because it is a real need um, and something that um, has been highlighted by this um, pandemic. Yeah. yeah. The, way Sorry, I saw the, the way I saw the, the uh, FCC money was, was directed towards telehealth. So, I mean, that's kind of two things that we've been talking a lot about at one time, which is broadband, telemedicine, and healthcare. Um, all of those things are important, but like you said, these aren't these aren't quick fixes. But they are they are good movements in the right direction. This is a lot of what we spent last week talking about was the need for broadband healthcare, telemedicine options. Um, yeah. Maybe this future proofs us against these types of things in the future. Well, yeah. and, and that's a great segue to the next item that we wanted to talk about, which is healthcare in general. There was a lot, obviously, in this bill regarding healthcare. Um, that's uh, there. There's a lot of problems that we've been dealing with regarding rural hospitals, and our president Blake Hurst has said quite a bit about this on some interviews and in a uh, article he wrote, an opinion piece he wrote that was in AgriPulse yesterday, day before, um, regarding um, why rural areas and rural health, rural hospitals need assistance. Um, his daughter works at a hospital in Fairfax, Missouri, in Atchison County. 
very small hospital that's very strained on resources. And so he's heard a lot firsthand from her of what they're going through right now. And BJ, I think you told us right before we started that um, that hospital just had its first positive uh, coronavirus case um, this morning, right? That's what I've heard. Yeah. You know, and that's a major strain on hospitals that are already struggling. These critical access hospitals um, are largely dependent on people coming and going, or at least the way I understand it, of those selected services, you know, the things that don't have to be done, not emergencies. That's what helps them maintain a bottom line. Yeah, those outpatient procedures and stuff. Outpatient procedures. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's that's the right that's the right terminology. Um, but those people have quit asking for those things. They're not coming in. They're avoiding the hospital as much as possible, which is even making the financial strain worse is the way I understand it. Um, and it's, it's hard to believe, but these rural hospitals and especially the critical access ones are really on tight budgets. There's a lot of yeah. money, moving, but to actually keep the funds going, um, the budgets are a lot tighter than you would imagine. And so we've been talking with, um, federal issues and and going to have some talks with state level leaders about what can we do to support these rural hospitals. I know in this um, stimulus bill, there's some funds for that. Um, hopefully the timing of those can be can moved up. But in the meantime, for short term needs, maybe we can get some help from the state level as well. So I know myself and Spencer and others on our staff have had a lot of conversations about what can we do and there's more conversations going about what do we do to help these hospitals at a time like this, we can't have anybody closing and nobody plans to close, but they've all got bills to pay and, and are seeing a lot of strain from this that, you know, just from the outside looking in, you wouldn't think, oh, they've got a CE coming and going through the door, um, at a, you know, all the time to keep it going. But it is, it is. Yeah. Well, and it's not even just about this coronavirus situation. It's, um, I, I think we'll get through this and they'll keep, stay open, but does that mean more of them are more likely to close after this is over because yeah. of the the back, uh, you know, the the hole that they get dug into based on taking care of all the people that are coming in for this stuff. So, um, Spencer, what do you see in the bill, uh, just in the couple hours you've had to look at it, um, that address <laughs> rural hospitals and rural healthcare? Well, BJ is exactly right. Timing is really of the essence when it comes to rural hospitals because a lot of them, they need assistance now. They don't need it in six to eight weeks. They might need it in six to eight weeks, but it's not as helpful if it doesn't come immediately. Um, so within the bill that passed the Senate last night, um, rural hospitals have the ability to ask for an advance on their Medicare payments up to six months out, and they can ask for 100% of those payments in advance. If you're a medical access hospital, of which there are 35, I believe, in the state of Missouri, you have the ability to ask for 125% of those payments to come in advance. Uh, the, the problem is going to be that it may take a while for rural hospitals to be able to access those funds. So we're looking at what are some creative solutions that we could come up with to maybe try to help bridge that gap between when the federal assistance is coming and right now when the hospitals need it. You know, I've heard anecdotally, um, some rural hospitals, because people are putting off those outpatient and sometimes elective procedures, they're losing tens of thousands of dollars a day. Um, and you're exactly right. They don't operate on a very thick margin to begin with. It's a very, very slim margin. And because they're being asked to stock additional medical supplies, masks, ventilators, all those things that are associated with, with this pandemic, they didn't, they didn't plan for that. In December, when they were doing their budgets, 
they didn't plan to have to stock 10 times the amount of supplies that they had in stock at the end of the year. Uh, so that's causing a very, very real financial strain. We hear a lot about um, shortages of medical equipment. That's something I've been hearing a lot this week. People can't get masks, people can't get uh, gloves, they can't get gowns. Um, but rural hospitals, they weren't, they hadn't planned for that in the first place. So they have an even harder time accessing those supplies because that's not something they've prepared for. Right. Um, so we're looking at all options, but that's a very quick summary of, of what's in the bill. Great. Well, and on another related note, BJ, the um, Medicaid expansion is something that's really been talked about quite a bit because Missouri is one of, I think, 14 states or something like that that has not chosen to expand its Medicaid program under Obamacare, which, by the way, turned 10 this week. Um, this is the 10th anniversary, 10th birthday, whatever you want to call it. I uh, hadn't heard that. Yeah, okay. I read a story in the I'm New York fine. Times yesterday about what, uh, on the 10th anniversary of Obamacare's passage, what is working and what isn't working. And it was really interesting because I thought it was relatively even-handed about, hey, you know, some parts of this build were not successful. And so there's some things they wish they would have done differently. And, you know, um, some things, of course, they say are huge successes. But one of the things it talked about was the Medicaid expansion and how states can individually choose whether or not they want to participate in that. And Missouri is one of the few states that has not done so. But there's some ballot initiative um, uh, efforts to initiative petition efforts to try to get that on the ballot. Um, so where do we stand on that, BJ? Yeah, so the big news this week uh, was that supporters claim they have enough signatures to place it on the ballot. Um, and so I don't have any information to say otherwise, but they say they have enough signatures to place it on the ballot. Um, that would be either August or November ballot. Uh, I would assume probably November, but it could be the governor usually has the ability to move those. I'm not sure with um, initiative petitions that went for signature. Uh, but it looks like that will be on the ballot. You know, when it comes to the debate on that, it all comes down to what the costs are. Um, there's experts that say both ways. It's a huge cost to the state, and there's experts that say, you know, a lot of that's reimbursed by the federal government, and it's not a huge cost to the state. Um, I'm no expert on it, but it does look like we will be dealing with it on the ballot this coming election cycle. Yeah, and I'm very much no expert on this issue, but I can assume, I, I think that I'm not going too far out on a limb to say that the uh, debate's going to be a lot different um, this fall than it would have been a year ago. Oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. absolutely right. Yeah, in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, or who knows, maybe still in the middle of a pandemic, yeah. um, to have that on the ballot, it's going to look a lot different than without that. Um, yeah. So a couple more things <clears throat> uh, before we go is the... Um, I think, BJ, you've been following what the governor's been saying about the shutdown stuff and um, yeah. and what's happening across the state of Missouri. Some states, the governor, the governors of those states have, have been a little more um, broad reaching in what, the, what orders they've issued. But in Missouri, Governor Parson has taken more of a localism approach. Um, but he, he did release some statements about uh, what should be and what should not be uh, followed. So what, what did you see on those? Yeah, so everybody that's following along, I was talking to someone yesterday, and I, this is not a political statement, this is not political party, but I think the governor is truly showing like his conservative leaning, like his conservative thinking. This is not about Republican or Democrat or independent. It's about you know the way you see the roles of government. And I think that he is pretty much stuck to the conservative side of point of view on this. 
where he's leaving those decisions to local governments. He left schools closing to the local school districts. He's leaving, you know, what do counties and municipalities choose to do and what restrictions do they put into place to their locations? Um, he did this week put out some guidances and, and we were really thankful for. We had heard from several members and those involved in industry that agriculture needed to be able to continue to move forward even if there were local such shutdowns put in place. Um, this past Tuesday and Wednesday, I think Director Chin was on with the press conference yesterday, which would be Wednesday. And Tuesday, the Department of Agriculture, Health and Human Services, and the Governor's Office came together uh, with kind of a directive for counties and municipalities as they consider putting in their own local um, restrictions of movement of people. Um, and it said that agriculture is a critical industry. Um, it, it, it quoted a Department of Homeland Security from the federal government standpoint that said this is critical industry um, and, and said that they shouldn't be held as a part of any kind of shutdown. You know, it, it sounds like it's self-serving, but the, the fact of the matter is we are. We're part of the food chain. We're feeding, fueling, and clothing the world. Um, and whether you're a rancher or a cattle producer or row crop um, farmer, we're looking at the end of a new growing season, and all of those things have to continue to move forward. As somebody that was related to the industry talked to me about last week, was we're facing a new planting season, and we only get one shot at planting. We only right. get one at fertilizing. Um, those things have to come with certain timing. So we really appreciate the governor moving that forward. We do know we'll probably see more restrictions, um, whether those be done locally or at the state level. Um, but hopefully we're, we're allowed to be consistent. And that's the other thing is about maintaining a consistency. You know, if you're, a, if you're an agri-service in one county, but you service several counties, um, you need to have that consistency across county lines. You know, the truth is from until now, the restrictions on movement that we have seen have all been consistent with Homeland Security's directive. Uh, but this just reinforced that and put it in front of those local decision makers. I think the governor, like I said, wants to allow local decision makers to serve their own communities as they see fit. Um, but wanted to give them some direction. You know, they can make their own decisions, but this is... Uh, let's maintain some consistency, allow ag and the food supply chain to continue to move forward. We are all taking our own steps to be safe out there, um, but we also need to be able to continue to do the vital work that we do. Right. And Spencer, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, it's okay. I was just going to jump on to some of the things you said. Um, something we're really tracking at the federal level is um, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, or FMCSA, they have exempted several agricultural products from the hours of service regulations that are in place when it comes to trucking regulations. Um, unfortunately, we've been hearing from some of our members that fertilizer has not been exempted. So they've exempted livestock, they've exempted perishables. Um, but unfortunately, while fertilizer can still move, it's just not seeing those same exemptions as other um, agricultural products. And, and we really do believe that's a critical agricultural input, especially this time of year. Um, I know here in mid-Missouri, we had a lot of rain already this spring. Um, people are already feeling pressure because of the planting season and, and the weather that we've had. Um, and we would hate to see further delays because fertilizer did not exempt it from those hours of service requirements. So um, we have been talking with American Farm Bureau. Uh, we've made some in our congressional delegation aware of this problem um, and hopefully we will be able to see some flexibility in the near future but um, that's why 
so important for Missouri Farm Bureau members to reach out to us when they hear something like that because out of all the things I've been tracking uh, and everybody else on our staff, that that's one I hadn't heard until two days ago. And it was because somebody picked up the phone and well, texted me, but you can call or email as well, um, and said like, hey, this is a problem. And I would never have known about it if somebody didn't bring it to my attention. So a little plug for definitely and let us know if you hear something. There are so many other things out there that I'm sure we're um, going to continue hearing about. It's hard to know yeah. all the things happening. Um, at any given time. So we definitely appreciate that from people. Uh, so as we go, uh, before we go, there's uh, our new tradition that we're doing. Um, the question of the day about what you're doing to, um, to deal with the quarantine. Um, so Spencer, we'll start with you this week. Um, what is the uh, Netflix or uh, Hulu or whatever it is streaming show that you've been using to help yourself cope with the quarantine? Well, the show that we are watching right now is called Longmire. It's on Netflix. Hmm. Never uh, heard of that one. Of, it, it's kind of like CSI, but in rural Wyoming. So you should have it oh. a while. Yeah, it's a good one. Interesting. Sounds what about good. you, BJ? So um, I fell prey to Netflix suggestions or what is popular. And uh, my wife and I started watching Tiger King. Um, it's quite a deal. Um, it's pure guilty pleasure. Um, Tiger King. Tiger King, I believe, okay. is the is the is the name of it. Um, it is quite a, show. Uh, a lot of interesting characters. Um, it's about people that own big cats. Um, different points of view on that. Uh, you know, they do um, exotic pet zoos and whatnot. But it's more about the characters that they are. Uh, we haven't gotten to the point there. Apparently, there's going to be possibly a murder for hire. Somebody's going to end up in jail. Um, oh, my gosh. And this is a reality show? <laughs> What's that? This is a reality show? It's a documentary reality. Yeah, I mean, this is it's <laughs> real. Um, at least the people, they now, seem unreal, but it's supposed to be real. Was the tiger involved in the murder? Um, the tiger, we've, we've made it to the point where the tiger does take off um, – a young woman's arm. Oh dear God! She went back to work in seven days because she believed in the cause and, and what they were doing. Um, so Hi. That's that's the most um, that's the I, most pain we've seen to this point. I watched Ooh. like a documentary or something about Siegfried and Roy once about you oh, know, yeah. how that all went down and holy crap that scared me to death. Like no one knew more about how to be around tigers than those guys, and one of them got mauled to death, or well, not quite to death, but almost to death. But well, it, it's it's uh, it's fascinating. They walk around in the cages with them. They pet them. That's nuts. Your house cat. So, uh, well, okay. Mine is slightly uh, less serious, um, and um, a little bit in between, I guess, of just how realistic. Um, actually, no, it's not realistic. Mine is from hulu and it is what we do in the shadows anyone heard of that one nope my wife told me i needed to watch it it's only had one season so far 10 episodes and each episode's only like 23 minutes so it took very little time i got through the whole thing in two days um but it is about it's a mockumentary about a group of vampires living in staten island and oh, nice it's pretty Did hilarious. Become vampires because they had COVID nineteen. <laughs> no, 
Um, interestingly enough, they did that not. That doesn't happen, by the way. Uh, let me just give <laughs> you sure. I retract that statement. Sorry. You don't have evidence of that to prove. But yeah, they, um, they're a group of like, you know, 18th century looking vampires who live in Staten Island and um, decide that they're, they need to try to take over Staten Island. And it's filmed like everyone else is normal and is wearing normal clothes, but they're wearing, you know, old timey stuff and acting as though it's still that time. And they go to like the city council meeting and uh all kinds of fun stuff anyway it's pretty funny so i highly like recommend fun. it so uh yeah we'll have to think of another great question to ask for next time but I'm if glad you, you guys have a question if you're watching this and you have a question put it in the comments maybe we'll consider it <laughs> you're a Absolutely. lot more bold than i am spencer <laughs> i'm trying i'm trying to be a youtube star like um, we saw from last time facebook can be mean yeah hey oh. good Good news, guys. They kept us up the whole time. And Debbie Johnson. Hi, Debbie Johnson. Hi, Debbie. Hey. We miss you. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us, guys. We'll uh, get this out on our podcast, um, hopefully in the next uh, few hours, maybe tomorrow uh, at the latest. But um, we'll try to get back together when we know more about what's going on and hope you guys uh, get a little bit of relaxation after reading a lot of bill language in the last few hours. Wow. It's been so fun. This is what I live for. <laughs> That's sad, go. but true. All right. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.